Please join us in reading 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 9. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. You are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For a while there is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Thank you, Dolnigs. I got one, buddy. I came prepared. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate y'all reading. Uh, good morning again, everybody. It's a little better that time, a little better. Still room for improvement, but that's okay. If you've got a Bible, please open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be studying this together. You might be saying, I thought that this was a new study on Corinthians that we started last week. What are we doing going to chapter 3? We started in chapter 15, and now we're going to chapter 3. We are looking uh, at the book of Corinthians through the lens of the 10 difficulties that Paul magnifies God in the gospel as a remedy and as a solution. And the first problem is a problem of unity and actually lasts four different chapters. So we are picking up in the middle of an argument at probably the most pivotal place. But before we go to the word of the Lord uh, to study it, can we go to the Lord of the word in prayer together? I am a Corinthian in search of other Corinthians, a broken man, completely unqualified in and of myself to stand up here, desperate for God's grace and the power of the gospel. So let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we're nothing, according to this passage, without you watering to give growth, or you giving growth. So Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do, that you would take our places of despair and discouragement, uh, Lord, the places of division and disharmony in our hearts, in our homes, in our church, in our city. And you would make yourself and your work so great and so clear that you would help us to find a home secure in your steadfast love. Holy Spirit, ambush us, we pray in your name. All God's people said... Amen, amen. So uh, the gospel invitation this morning is for uh, the dysfunction of our lives, the division that we long to see healed, uh, the direction that we're eager to go in relationships, in our society, um, this hope for wholeness, 
and longing for a quality of life. Uh, We are uh, freed from the temptation to get stuck in our despondency or defeat and to find a delight in God and the gospel. I want to remind you of the perspective that we're going through. Uh, We talked about the John Templeton Foundation uh, study that they've been doing the research on awe. And awe simply uh, is a reminder that, this is a quote from the study, that awe connects us to others and to humanity at large. It gives us a more accurate perception of our place in the world. And and this is from a study of of more than 1,500 middle-aged adults found that those who felt more awe of God also reported a greater sense of connection with other people. Those who are more disproportionately prone to awe are rated as more humble by their friends. And when psychologists introduced awe in controlled studies, they found that awe-inspired participants were more likely to acknowledge other people's contributions to their personal success, a sign of both humility and interconnectedness. Paul is, his whole strategy is to establish a a perspective, understanding that God in the gospel should give us a sense of awe, a, a magnification, a small window into the magnitude of who God is and what he has done for you. I don't know if you've ever been in an argument with somebody or, or you've ever read about an argument or watched people argue and, and, and you just get a little bit of perspective and it's like, I can't believe I was that worked up over something so small. You ever been there? Is it just me? Table for one up here, right? Am I all the way back at middle school? All right. He's sitting alone. <laughs> Glad that's funny to you, Michael. So, traumatic memories. But this is Paul's strategy that the perspective of who God is and what he's done would be so great that it lifts our eyes from ourselves, from our personal preference, and it gives us a sense of humility. And in this passage, we'll celebrate the unity with humanity that comes. Paul goes through, in this argument, he goes through the door of maturity to address unity as his top priority of all the 10 dysfunctions we're going to look at in Corinth. The gospel is the solution for unity, not just for the church in Corinth, but I'm going to tell you this. The gospel is a solution. Having all the gospels is a solution for unity in your marriage, in relationships that you long for reunion in, in family dysfunction, in our church as well as Corinth, and I'm going to say this, even in our society at large, having an all the gospel is an invitation for this. Magnifying God and his work will bring us humility. Paul started this article in 110. If you have your Bibles, look back. This has been, like I said, a, 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 a significant argument. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Cleo's people that there is quarreling among you. What I mean is, 
Each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And he launches into this uh, several sections, this series of arguments, and and what we're going to read is a very pivotal one, what we're going to study, where he magnifies the gospel and the work of Christ so much so that it puts perspective into what is essentially like a bumper sticker campaign. Right? They're putting on their horse and buggies or whatever they used back then. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. And Paul says, is Christ divided? Did Paul die for you? Did Apollos die for you? And he emphasizes the simplicity of the gospel. If we continue to read through the passage, which I encourage you to do. It, he came knowing nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you might say Paulus, Apollos plays a significant role in our passage. About a quick word of introduction of who he is. I know probably you had your quiet times in the New Testament dictionary this morning, so this is repetition for you. But Apollos, of course, is towards the front because his name begins with A. So you probably got there. He was a Jew from Alexandria. That's in Egypt. He was uh, noted in Scripture, Acts 18, 18, as someone who was exceptionally well-versed in the Scriptures. Uh, Cultured in classical Greek, exceptionally gifted as a teacher. Apollos apparently had the ability to capture the hearts of the Corinthians in his teaching uh, and his gifting. And here's the kicker. There's no clear distinction anywhere in Scripture in what Apollos taught and what Paul taught. What was different was their personalities and how they did it. And Paul just says, man, there is just no room for personal preference among the people of God. And so he goes through the doorway of maturity to deal with this issue of unity as his top priority. And here's the way he goes. He uses God in the gospel, we're going to get there, as kind of a tuning fork for a piano. I read this uh, in an A.W. Tozer. He was a 20th century theologian, a Christian Missionary Alliance. Um, He wrote some great books. A lot of them are free online. Um, He has one on the holiness of God that I recommend. You can just Google his name, Tozer, Holiness of God, free PDF, and you can download it to your device. It's worth reading. But this this quote comes from uh, The Pursuit of God, The Human Thirst for the Divine. He says this, has it ever occurred occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be, were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for fellowship. The whole idea is that they have this standard, this higher focus actually brings a, different, a deeper sense of unity when we magnify God and his work in the gospel than if we move towards each other looking for the best fellowship in the world. Here's the problem. You and I, especially me, We have all of greater things than God in the gospel. We have all of personalities. We have all of personal preference. We have all in the just just a sick idolatry of self-preservation. That's my big thing. And we we establish and anchor our all uh, horizontally. And we miss the opportunity for 
what God wants to give us in a deeper sense of unity. So here's just basic, two basic points. We've established the similarity between Corinth and our own culture today. Um, and uh, we're just going to jump right into our points. The first point is this, immaturity divides. Immaturity divides. You say, Mitchell, that sounds uh, like you're talking to us like middle schoolers. Say, so, well, I, I'm not. I'm using the language of Scripture. Paul says this, uh, but I, brothers and sisters, and we should note, Paul hugs hard before he hits hard. Can we appreciate that? He calls them family, they're brothers and sisters, right? He brings them close before he starts to pummel them. Like good family stuff, a familia perspective precedes the pummeling. We like that. He says, I could not address you as spiritual people. Now, if we look at all the argument in chapter two, they're definitely converted people. They definitely have the Holy Spirit in them. They're not um, uh, of the flesh, but they're living like they're still in the flesh. He says this, uh, I've got to, uh, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, he goes through this door of maturity. He's like, you're actually infants. I fed you with milk and not solid food for you were already for it. And even now you're not ready for you're still of the flesh. You're still living in the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, you're not of the flesh, behaving only in human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Yes, the Corinthians were sealed by the Spirit, but they couldn't be addressed as spiritual people. Why? Because they looked too much like their divided culture. See, we can't identify with this at all, can we? <laughs> the, the, the phrase living according to the flesh is repeated three times in the first three verses. Living of milk rather than solid, solid food. It's, it's nuanced in a couple of ways in verse two. It's like Paul's like, bow, 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 bow. He's just pummeling the Corinthians. And living off of spiritual milk, this is something that, that other apostles said to the church when they diagnosed immaturity. This is not a Paul one-off. Peter says it in 2 Peter, 1 Peter 2.2. 2. Uh, the Hebrew uh, author to the Hebrews says it in Hebrews 5, verse 12, living off spiritual milk. What does that communicate? It's dependency. It's living as an infant who can't survive on their own. The Corinthian church, they, they, they were great at listening to people's podcasts. They were great at reading other people's devotions. They were great at, at sharing things on Facebook. But they weren't good at getting in their word and living, uh, feeding off of the word of God to themselves. I don't know if you've seen the movie Vacation. I'm not recommending it. But they operated with a poverty like Cousin Eddie. And Cousin Eddie, I, I love the scene where he, he's, he's talking to, to Clark. He's like, man, I don't know why they call this stuff hamburger helper. It does just fine by itself. Ugh. He's stirring Kool-Aid with his hand at that moment because he didn't have a spoon. But we live that way. I don't know why they call this stuff the word of God. I can just live off a hamburger helper. And it's this settling for immaturity and malnourishment because we're dependent upon others. The third thing, he says, you're living merely as if you're human with jealousy and with strife. The divisions among you, I mean, he, he, he intentionally rips 
from his list in Galatians 5, 19 to 20, when, when he is uh, detailing the opposite of living in the fruit of the Spirit. That there is such an intense self-focus, such an intense self-preservation, such an intense uh, level of privilege where you feel like you're entitled to get what you want, how you want, that you're jealous of other people who have what you don't have, right? And uh, you're, there's strife. And this is, you know, all through the New Testament. Why are there fights and quarrels among you, says James? Because you want and you do not have. It's your desires are disordered. This is a disturbing diagnosis for the root of their division. Uh, the Corinthians were walking according to the flesh rather than walking according to the Spirit. Uh, they weren't acting any different than other Corinthians in the city that weren't Christians. They were following their favorite orator. They were following their favorite traveling teacher. And Paul, again, comes at him. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Like, aren't you just being human? Yeah. You see, uh, here's the truth. We can't throw any stones. We all have this tendency to um, elevate people uh, more than we should. And uh, the gospel, just, the God, all, and all of God in the gospel remedies that quickly. Um, the word that people are using nowadays for this kind of thing is parasocial. It's a parasitic social relationship. So especially as our culture gets more and more social media driven, uh, more people are saturated with media, we can see it more clearly, that people live parasitically through greater personalities. So if there's a really famous musician uh, and you wonder how hundreds and hundreds and thousands and millions of people are so emotionally attached to a person that they do not know, so much so that when they break up with somebody, they're crying and you're going, what? It's called a parasocial relationship. We live vicariously like a parasite through other people. But it's not just uh, Gen Z after certain musicians. I get this way uh, about different leaders. Our culture gets this way uh, about uh, different political figures. It's a reality. In the latest studies on parasocial relationships, I, I just want to read this real quick, um, that people form friendship-like bonds. It's totally one direction. That influence us so much that it influences our political views, our purchasing behaviors, attitudes about gender stereotypes, trust in various groups of people, and questioning of different levels of authority. This one-sided relationship whereby we parasitically relate to personalities that are, that are greater than ourselves. We do it in the church all over the place where we live parasitically through people that, uh, that teach and preach and blog and all this, right? For me, I do it through leaders. I'm not throwing stones here. You want to you wanna know who I've been parasitically living through? Can I have a moment of true confession? Is that okay? Okay. Uh, you might laugh at this, but Lionel Messi, the guy is unbelievable. I was in a meeting this week where I used him and I, uh, as an example. I got super, super excited, so much so that people were like, why are you so excited about Lionel Messi? And you're going, who is this guy? He's the greatest football player, soccer player in the history of soccer. And after winning the World Cup, leading Argentina to the World Cup, he came to MLS soccer. And uh, he's 
came into the worst team in MOS. They had uh, more losses than goals before he got there. And Lionel Messi comes in. He's so competitive. He's so passionate. And he elevates people to such a higher level that his team has won 10 straight games. They won the League Cup, which is astounding. And in 10 games, they've scored like 25 goals. It's completely flipped absolutely everything. Why? Because one person came in and elevated. And, and how, Mitchell, how do you live vicariously? I honestly, true confession, I check every day what Lionel Messi does. I'm glad that's funny for you. I got a problem. Right? ESPN, all these other things, they feed this parasocial relationship. I saw a picture of him. You can walk downtown. Uh, he is now advertising for Hard Rock Cafe. And I was like, it's not how messy. But Lisa's like, oh, you got a problem, man. Like, you got a problem. Parasocial relationships. Okay? And we all have them in one way or another. And it's because we have a greater awe of people or something else than we do of God and the gospel. And it's not, look, it's great to appreciate greatness, but it is devastating to allow it to have emotional, mental, physical control over you. It's idolatry if you look for your significance in these places. So what's the remedy for this diagnosed immaturity? Paul hits the tuning fork of God and the gospel so that our hearts come into alignment. He magnified God's, our immaturity divides, magnifying God unites. Look at this. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. Immediately, he names himself and Apollos merely as servants. They've been assigned by God. God is the owner of the church. I planted, says Paul. Apollos watered, said Paul. But God gave the growth. And if we look in this section, God comes first every time. God gives the growth at the end in verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. This is God's building. And what he's doing is he's taking our eyes off of ourselves, taking the Corinthian eyes off of ourselves, and magnifying God. Without God, there's nothing. He literally says it. Uh, he who plants and he who waters are one. They're unified. They'll receive his, 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 uh, their wages according to our labor. He says, so neither he who plants, verse 7, neither who waters, there is anything. Nothing. God is utterly magnified. God is the owner. God gives the growth. And as recipients of God's grace, at best, Christians are just transplanted into God's field, the church in Corinth. This fits what Paul teaches in Colossians, that when we come to Christ, He says that we've been ripped from the domain of darkness, chapter 1, verse 12 to 14. We've been ripped from the domain of darkness and transplanted, rerooted into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, through whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. At best, I mean at best, you are a plant that's been taken from darkness and death and put into the soil of God's salvation, that is the church. And I don't mean to, to be discouraging, but that's it. 
God is everything. God's the one that made you. God's the one that created you. God's the one that knit you together in this room. God's the one that loved you before the foundation of the world. God is the one that saved you. God is the one that gives you a spirit. God's the one that has absolutely executed everything on your behalf. God is all. He is in all. He is for all. And there's nothing you can do to get outside of his will or his work. This right-sizing that we get from Paul emphasizes that the gospel gives us a new primary identity. We are not who we follow. We are not who we're friends with. We are not just our feelings as a final authority. We don't have to see fracturing in our society, in our primary relationships, in our church, or in our society as anything else but an opportunity for the gospel to be displayed. Because when your primary identity is a child of God, then it frees you to live in the family of God, in unity, beyond divisions, Beyond denominations, I always remind people, I talked to a guy this week about denominational stuff in our city, and I I said, hey, look, you understand, like, when Paul wrote the letter to Corinthians, he didn't write, like, to the Presbyterian church in Corinth. He was writing Christians in Corinth. They were established, planted, rooted on his second missionary journey. We're so, we're so used to defining ourselves by who we're associated with and what we're born into and what our preferences are that we miss the opportunity. I was reminded this week, someone really close to me had a flat tire recently. You ever had a flat tire? Like no one gets a flat tire and they're like, yes, this is perfect timing. Like I couldn't have been a better time for a flat tire. Like it always disrupts. It's always a headache. It's always frustrating. And, and can I just be frank? A lot of people come in, if you're like me, you came into this service today feeling like you either got a tire low or you got a flat tire in life. This person had a flat tire. Uh, They were actually participating in a ministry event, they say. And so you understand you're doing something good for God in your mind, right? And you get a flat tire. Like, what is this? What have I done, right? Kind of get a victim mentality. They go into discount tire, I'm not saying that because giving's low. Selfless plug, no patch, I'm not being sponsored. It's because it happened. They go in there, and the guy sees this person's a little despondent, and they start talking. And the person starts sharing a little bit of their story, where they were coming from, what they were doing, and this guy says, you know what? I'm a Christian too. It's good to meet you. Thanks for encouraging me by serving you want to know where my mission field is? He said, my mission field is here at Discount Tire. I have a Bible study once a week with the guys here because God's called me here. Will you pray for me? And this person moved from feeling like life was derailed from a flat tire to having an inflated encouragement, a fullness of heart. Why? Because there was a unity. This person was a different race, a different gender, a different name it than the the person that tells me the story. 
And they finish the story with this verse. Celebrating the oneness of the body, they just say this. It reminded me of Ephesians 4, 2 to 6. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel. We thank you that life is not about us, that we have a new, prior, a new primary identity as your people because we've been bought with your blood. We thank you, Lord, that people like me can seek forgiveness from you, ways that we've been driven by personal preference, ways that we've taken ourselves, I've taken myself way too serious, ways that I've lived parasocially and, and idolatry, idolatrously in this world. Oh, Lord God, we, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to see the fullness of who you are and what you've done. And we ask that you and your work would truly be a tuning fork, that all of our hearts would be aligned for you, that you might maximize and optimize glory from us, and that you might advance your kingdom. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. We-